You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. If you love hunting, fishing, or just like to be outside, Go Wild is the social media destination for you. You can download this app directly to your smartphone or mobile device just by visiting and searching in the Google Play Store. You can also visit timetogowild.com for more information. It's time to get outside and go wild. Welcome to Land Legs Podcast. I'm your host Adam Keith and Matt Dye, and we are here with another. Uh, for, this is for the guys. I know these are popular podcasts of ours. Um, the property breakdowns. Yeah, um, it, it only hit a nerve. You know, scratch an itch for a lot of people. I, I think it's a great brainstorm session for a lot of guys when they watch these or listen to these because of the fact that it kind of makes them start thinking about their property specifically and things to do. Um, and I really enjoy these. Oh, yeah. Um, of course, we could do them every week, really, <laughs> if we wanted to. But um, it, it's a great time for people to kind of uh, – or to really pull in that creative – creativity cap and start thinking about um, their property compared to this property and things they can do. It takes real life situations and applies what we talk about all the time on the podcast, directly applies it and puts it on properties. So it's a very visual podcast if you can have such a thing. Um, But we're we're trying to do our best through a podcast format to educate and, and really bring all this information we talk about weekly full circle and you can see it, um, on a property and, and listen to kind of where they're at now and then yep. how these techniques are going to be utilized to get them where they want to be. So this podcast is going to be, I, I think truly uh, applicable to a lot of people. Yeah. Like there, it, this, this area is extremely dynamic um, in the land uses and people would automatically associate, you know, when they look at this farm, Oh my gosh, it's going to hunt so good. But there's a lot of things that honestly it is missing right now but can easily be fixed, and we're going to talk about it and, and why basically it's going to complete the circle of the property or, or add those extra puzzle pieces to, to make it work. Yeah. So yeah, this is a property that Matt actually worked a couple weeks ago, 
and maybe just a week ago. I don't even know. A remember. week ago, yeah. A little over a week yeah, ago. A little over a week and, ago. And uh, Central Missouri and just a, a nice property. Um, yeah. But with the plan implemented, it could be a, just a really, really awesome piece of ground. It's a 105 acres. 105 acres. 105 yeah. acres. So um, with a very fragmented type landscape. Before we. And not just well, 105 acres, 105 acres that they live on. Yes, yes, this is also a residence, permanent yep. residence. Um, so we, you'll see in, in some of the things we talk about how that is incorporated into uh, you know, the huntability of the farm and then just the overall recreation enjoying the land itself. Yeah. Um, one quick announcement. T-shirts are live on the store for love of the land. Pre-order. Pre-order sales. So it's not going to be order and it's going to be at your doorstep the next two days yeah. later it's a pre-order so it's a little bit longer to get it but but uh, there's a discount with that pre-order that's right 25 percent off t-shirts um there is a green a gray and a brown color with the for love of the land land and legacy logo on it they're pretty sharp hope you guys will check them out that's www.landandlegacyapparel.com any other big announcements we're rolling in we're hitting 2019 really quick i don't know what happened to december I don't either. But everyone better lost be in prepared. sleep deprivation. <laughs> everyone better be ready for 2019 because um, it is rapidly approaching. And there's some cool things we're going to go check out our YouTube for. channel. Yep. Go. Uh, our latest film, or yep. not latest film, I, I don't know if it qualifies as the latest video, video. film, whatever um, you want to call it. Of her. Your Doe Kill and My Kill is on our Facebook and our YouTube channel. So yep. just go to our YouTube channel and go ahead and hit subscribe. You're not going to want to miss the things we have coming. And uh, hopefully you guys will. If you like the information we share on the podcast, you're going to love what's coming in 19 on That's YouTube. Right. So just go ahead, click subscribe, and be watching for all those coming down the line. Well, you ready to get started on this thing? Yeah, I'm I'm ready to go. So kind of introduced it south I mean, excuse me, central Missouri, a little a little outside of the on the eastern side of the state, um, probably about an hour, hour and a half from St. Louis area. Um, so Right smack dab in the middle of the country, and a lot of people associate, you know, that kind of center line of Missouri and North, just absolute prime hunting destination um, for, for people. And, and this property and area sits maybe a mile and a half off the Missouri River, the flats of the Missouri River. So, um, you know, as you can quickly see when you're looking on the map, and if you haven't looked, if you're listening, go to this uh, the Facebook page, and you will see. Um, a map of this property up and and links and stuff on, on show notes and kind of some more explanations. Anyhow, so when you're looking at this property, you automatically see a really fragmented property. You've got crop fields. You've got a couple of big ponds. You've got some timber. Um, you'll notice just off the property on the southeast corner, there's a, there's a large creek uh, flows year-round. And you're like, wow, that thing. I mean, immediately, you're like, that would hunt awesome. Like, I could... I could tear some deer up there on that property uh, just because of the fragmentation. But um, there's a lot of things, honestly, though, that are missing on a, on this property. Adam, you, we've talked about it, of course, but w- when you look at that property, just an aerial, what uh, you do you see, see? You see a lot of bottlenecks. Yeah. You see a lot of travel corridors. Um, you see a lot of potential. Um, I mean, we see some crop fields. 
we see some big ponds. Um, of course, we see the woodlots, and we see kind of like a, a woodlot just off the property of the northwest and a woodlot just off the property of the southeast. You're like, oh, they're going to travel right through this farm. But to me, I guess some of my one of my immediate concerns would be house pond really form a huge bottleneck um, as far as deer are going to have to be out in the open the way it sits currently, most likely to where uh, they may not move as much right up there around that house just because of the uh, the fragmentation of the property. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but I look at it and I'm like, man, there's some great bottlenecks to where you could really strategically place some things to where you get some very awesome deer movement during daylight and that's the that's the key to this property um is that there are bottlenecks in place and great pinch points and and places where you're like man i could totally kill deer there but what is lacking is the ability for deer to be bedded on the property and utilize those pinches we talked about it um in a couple podcasts ago you know a a pinch point is the success that you'll have in a pinch point is directly correlated with the resources on either side of that pinch point. And if you don't have good resources on either side of it, then automatically you're going to be lacking the activity that you're expecting to see through that pinch point. So there's no reason to be there. Then, then the deer aren't going to be there. So, um, it's important to, to know that. And you'll see that as we talk about this property and break it down, a lot of the puzzle pieces uh, are, are going to be just, if you will, put in place with things like bedding areas, food resources, old field management, um, the implementation of a grass screen shrub in, in a transition area, edge feathering, all these different things. So it's important to, to kind of keep that in mind, even though it looks super, super appealing as you're looking at an aerial, you know, you have to get boots on the ground to understand what the habitat is. And then if it needs to be altered in a certain direction. So um, we're going to start right there at the point number give, one. Give me an, a, a description of what you would see right now, though. Crop fields? Crop fields. This year there was soybeans planted um, in, in all the areas that are tan. Um, they're in, indicated there on the on the photo. Um, they've what about harvested. the green field? The green field is fresh this year, just planted this fall, just started. Um, there's two of them basically just east of the pond and then through that little uh, wooded draw, there's another field. That is alfalfa. What's so, the timber look like? Wide open. Wide open timber. Wide open. There's a couple pockets of cedars, um, but the, the timber is relatively old unmanaged. cedar? Pretty old. They're not so, the dense cedar thicket as in, you know, you can't see through them. When you're in them, you've got a canopy above your head of cedar. A lot of the limbs are dying out. Um, because they're so crowded. And, and so once you get in the center of them, you're looking, you don't even have to bend down to look and see, you know, 80 yards through there. They're very wide open. Okay. Um, the sunlight so completely blocking the... Where's the cover? Where's the bedding on this place? There's not. Okay. There's not great quality bedding currently. And that needs to be created. We'll, we'll see that um, as, we're, as we begin to go through these points, um, where they're going to be at, why they're going to be there, and uh, that's that's the big thing, you know. There's not great bedding on the property. It's it's right now has got food sources. Um, we're going to enhance those, but you know. And the other thing to to point out, the owner of the property just took ownership in May. So 
this is new to him and new to his family. So the education, you know, the history of the property is not all there. So, you know, we're taking one year, one fall of success and and understanding the property, how deer move throughout it, um, and and trying to put this together. So um, number one is going to start us right there in that that largest wood block on the north section of the farm. And that's where we started the tour at. It's like, okay, let's go up there. Let's just, let's kind of go counterclockwise around the farm and, and we'll make our way around there. As soon as you get in there, it is your, your typical black oak, hickory, shagbark hickory, post oak, and a few scattered white oaks. Um, just wide open timber, very little cover in there, very little saplings, some hackberries, um, just dotted throughout here. I mean, it, you could see from one end of it all the way down to the other end. There was no deer that were staying in there. There were a couple beds that we found, but that was most likely at night. You know, there was there was zero cover. Um, but this this area, you know, attracted. I was attracted to it because it was nothing right now. It was no man's land. They weren't utilizing it yet. It was part of the farm, so immediate it's like what needs to change how do we need to change it um, to make it a portion of the farm that's going to benefit the overall goal and and because of the lack of cover um, and the the surrounding crop fields it needed to be bedding yeah or a portion of it needed to be bedding because what you can't really see is across the road off the property is a larger wood block and then to the West and northwest, there's another larger wood block. A lot of the deer that are utilizing that north portion of the farm, like they were talking about, hey, I'm going to see deer every night when I pull into my driveway. They're in the fields, but I can't hunt them. They, they come there after dark. So we got to cut down that distance and utilize that north portion, um, create good bedding, manage that timber, implement bedding area thickets, and, and boom, you can do that right from the get-go. And that, How uh, many times do we see that? from people that write in, people that call in or or send us a message that they have a smaller piece of property or even it's a it's a piece of property that's close to the neighbor and they're like, well, I don't really hunt there because deer don't move there till after dark because they're bedded on the neighbors. How many times do we hear the phrase, oh, they bed on the neighbors? Yep. Like, All the time. When you think <laughs> about that, like what what is it about the neighbor's property that makes him want to bed there? Yep. Like what why can't we just replicate what the neighbor has going on? Mm-hmm. Or let's take it one step better and say I want to take what the neighbor has, make it significantly better and put that on my own place. Correct. A lot of times they bet on the neighbors because the neighbors is a sanctuary, not because it's great habitat. Nobody ever goes there. Nobody's ever That's on the neighbor's huge, property. Huge huge reason. And so why can't we just make ideal habitat? improve it to where they have the security, they have the cover, but it's on your place now. And it's a much shorter distance for them from that bedding to a f- your area with mm-hmm. food. No doubt. And that and that's a portion of the farm, truthfully, that isn't going to get a lot of human interaction. There's no need to go up there um, besides that field getting planted. Um, that's far enough away from the pond. If they want to go fish at the pond or the lake, you know, you're not interrupting or disturbing any of that. So exactly, it, it needs to be bedding. And and we're going to spend quite a bit of time in this little, really it's a 30-acre section, because it was not utilized at all um, previously. So we've got that one bedding block right there in the center. 
Um, and then when we look at, at point number two, I think we jump across and we go to the bedding that is just west of that. And that's what you were talking about. You're asking about uh, cedars on the farm. That's yeah. one of those prime examples of there was a field and then it got overgrown and the very edge of that was was cedars is what came back. And you're looking at, I mean, some of the, some of the like DBH on these cedars is you're up 15, 16 inches. Like there's yes. some big cedars. You could get logs out of them. You could get logs out of them and, and or make a great mantle for the house that they're going to build on the property. Um, but anyhow, as soon as we got in, we, we, we parked on the on the, the field edge. And beforehand, of course, that's a little bit of a slope. So it's a south-facing slope on the field. I said, stop here real quick. Get a kind of a, a temperature reading. You know, the sun's hitting you. Just take it in for a second. And then as soon as we walked in to that cedar thicket, I said, now think about it. Did you get colder? And like, holy cow, yeah, I did. I said, you're out of the sun. Yeah. And if you get down on deer's level, there is zero cover here. How do we make deer stay in between, I mean, on, on the north side? And the other cool factor about this is now we've got two bedding areas on, on the, the north side. And there's a small right, right away, power line right away that splits the two. So, we're, and of course, we're going to cut and those And that right away is going to be old, old field management. Old field management, yep. So, of course, we're going to cut the two. I mean, cut cut all the cedars and create that as a little bit in area. It's going to be a smaller area, but that's okay. It's going to be probably half to three quarters of an acre. But right now, it's not doing you any good. Let's cut the distance down that deer are traveling. And then, at that point, we've got two bedding areas on the north side and a straight shot right-of-way in between the two. And we can access all day long on the north of both of those bedding areas on a south wind and hunt it. And those deer bucks that are going to be checking those two areas are going to be bouncing back and forth between that opening. And you're, you're, all the deer you're going to anticipate are going to be more in the interior of the farm, like in a morning situation, feeding, doing this and that. So you're backdooring them the whole time. And they never know you're going to be in the world up there as they make their way from the center of the farm back to these bedding areas on the exterior. Scent checking them finding those so we went from nothing right there at that point to creating two bedding areas utilizing a right-of-way for hunting purposes and, and put a stand up there just north and, of the two and there's going to be a areas. food plot a cover crop correct correct and that and that's the thing that we need to spend quite a bit of time on in explaining okay a lot of this farm as you see is is open ag field and that food plot adjacent to the cedar bedding area, point number three there. That's a, a beautiful south-facing slope, but right now, after the grain has been cut, there's no food. I mean, it, it picked clean. So, but prior to this plan, the food sor- major food sources was crops during the f- during the summer and yep. early fall before yep. they get harvested. Soybeans was the large makeup of this, so mm-hmm. uh, they they. Uh, browsed on that all summer and then they got harvested so no food now really other than a little bit of spilled grain but let's be honest modern combine doesn't leave much spilled grain anymore no no, not at all and then the alfalfa fields which were just planted just planted so they're not a huge amount of forage there now it will get better in the future Mm -hmm. but it's still not your late season attraction Um, and then you have your 
acorn production. Hard masts. And, but, and, and very little browse. Yes. Because and, it's unmanaged forest. Yes. And what did uh, Mississippi State, uh, their their research that came out about a couple months ago or a month ago was that managed timber produced more um, Oh yeah, more acorn production. Acorn production, yep. If you have a, a tree. More sunlight basically yes. meant more acorn production. So we know that this unmanaged timber doesn't have the quality of production that it could have. And we know unmanaged timber is roughly – 50 to 100 pounds of digestible forage per year per acre and so that that this is a challenging thing this is why again this property is so applicable to other people and gets the gets the rap of oh you've got crops you've got deer well he's got crops and he's got deer in the summertime he's got great pictures of of deer on this property you know september august october time frame and then they're pretty much gone at that point because all the crops are gone. He doesn't have bedding on the property currently. And there's no other reason really for them to stay minus the little bit of acorns that are around in fall. Yeah. But all the other properties have that and or more and better resources. So it, it, it's, it's that typical, I'm going to look at that property from air and be like, wow, that looks awesome. But he has he has a peak right now currently. And that's, that's summertime. And early, early fall, but we need to change that. We need to have these resources attractive uh, or, or on the property that are attractive during the fall and winter time frame to hold deer all year round. What did we say? We, we said it all last week on the podcast. I'd rather have high-quality cover. I'd rather start with high-quality cover than high-quality food. Yep. yep. And and this place has had um, – were there any food plots prior? They're very small. Okay. Very, very – like corner, less, less than an acre planted. Yeah. So basically, there was limited food and very limited cover, true right. good high quality cover. Now there's going to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven really high quality um, bedding areas, and a couple of them are pretty large because of mm-hmm. the of the layout of eastern red cedar. Um, and so removing removing the eastern red cedar is going to cause major bedding areas yep. to where probably likely would have some of the highest quality bedding in the neighborhood. And then you add a few more acres of food and drop of a hat and one, one season to the next is going to change greatly. Well, the, that's the, the best thing about this setup. And, and it's kind of a, a pre-recap, but it's applicable right now, is the majority of the practices that need to be implemented on this property he will see a direct he, – he can make all these improvements basically in a year and will see a direct change based on the on the, the practices that he's implementing within this year in the deer activity on the farm. And I say that because the food plots that you see on the property are simply just broadcasting fall blends into the crop fields. Yeah, in August. In August, 45, 60 days before his frost, which is probably going to be middle of October. That's when he's that's when he's broadcasting and walking through these fields. Most of the time, it, it, it may be that the grain's not taken out of the field yet. That's most likely the case. But that's okay. Yeah. It's simply walk down every couple rows with a bag seeder and, the, and a great high-diversity blend like the Legacy blend and plant these areas. When crops are gone, you've got – Fall forage left in the field. Is the plan going to be corn next year? 
It was yes. soybeans this yes. year, so it's going to rotate, rotate corn next he's, year. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So he's going to be walking through every third, fourth row of corn with the bag seeder during late August and, and planting these fields. Yeah. It's no different from flying a crop, a cover crop in or, or anything like that. It's just doing it before it gets harvested. And then when the grain's off out of the fields, he's got remaining areas that are in conjunction and placed where he can access and hunt, but also in, in direct correlation to bedding areas. So point number four is going to be the two stands that are um, located basically to kind of cover that north section. Um, the one is right there on the field edge. Um, and when we share this map, I think it's important we share the kind of the habitat one, if you will, because of, it kind of allows for, for better access and understanding of, of how the, the closed edge feathering is going to help um, the access to these stands. So the, the one that's adjacent to the food plot, just south of the food plot, kind of the southeast corner, um, that's a great bow stand. He can hunt that, you know, October, November, um, with the right winds, he can certainly do that. But but we also wanted to give the opportunity for a late season hunt there because we, we talked about the this south-facing exposure, this hillside and slope. Those areas are going to be prime bedding for for late season. Um, so he does muzzleloader hunt, likes to do that. Um, and there's a great access. If you come, leave the house, go walk around the, the pollinator blend that's to be established, the if you're kind of on the back side of the slope of the pond there around the banks, you can get all the way up to that fence line or field edge on the north side of the pond, shimmy up a, a cedar. You've got great backing. Um, the sun is going to be in the deer's eyes as they're getting up and feeding and then soaking in that sun again. So I would expect muzzleloader season with a food plot there, south-facing bedding, Deer are going to be on their feet relatively early because they don't have to travel hardly any distance, but you're not disturbing anything. If you hunt it on a north wind, you can hunt on a northeast wind, you can hunt on a northwest wind, very applicable for late season, and then your scent is just blowing back across the pond. So you have zero disturbance to the farm itself to hunt that area late season. You're not interfering with anything. You're not putting pressure on them. You're in and out. You're not going to be seen. So... It may, and that shot distance is 100 yards maybe. Wow. So, and, and that's the other thing about that planting technique. These This suggestion of the size is kind of a minimum. He can do more and expand it all the way down. But let's start here, see how the deer react, and, and go from there. It's a very easy thing to do um, in, in this planting method. But now... We've got those four points up on the north side. Again, there was nothing on that north side that was appealing, attractive to wildlife. And, and now we've completely changed that and utilized that 25-acre section and incorporated it into a portion of the farm that's now going to be, a again, a big puzzle piece on the property. So number five, that next point, is the transition zone that needs to be really established um that was one of one 
before we really started breaking down these points, that was one of the areas that I noticed or that I was talking about. Like that pond is so large and there's mm-hmm. so little cover around it. And that's kind of the the chain link between the southeast totally. and the northwest. And it's like and there's a house on the on the kind of the east side, northeast side of that. So it's like, ooh, there needs to be something here to try and funnel them through to yes. where they feel safe where they're not running a gauntlet to get well, across it. yeah there, there's no other i guess what's what is proposed is a native warm season grass and shrub mixture transition zone to basically extend and connect the north side of the farm and the funnels the transition zones um from the north side then to the south side of the farm and right now like you said it would be wide open um for a deer to travel that distance and, and complete that span right now. Um, so there's there's great fragmentation across the property, but it's a little discon- disconnected, honestly. Um, and to make it make sense, there needs to be this additional transition zone. And it can be easily created with um, the cover in, in the form of shrubs and a mixture of warm season grasses. It's just a matter of planting it basically from the, the western side of the pond all the way down to the other pond. And then that, that pond dam on the south side, that's a pretty good pinch because that's the easiest path. It's flat. It's, it is relatively narrow, but deer are going to certainly run that um, very, very uh, often because we're connecting that north side to the south side with that um, transition zone planted in grass and shrubs. So it's definitely a key element to the, to the property. Um, we want a lot more daylight activity on the farm. We're going to, we're going to utilize bedding areas and more, if you will, safe, secure transition zones, um, all across the property. So that is a, is a key element to connecting and making this property hump better and for deer to funnel around it in a way that that makes sense, um, because really beyond that there was a there's a fence row um, on the very western edge. You can kind of see on that the middle of the property. That was really the only thing connecting. Is and that is a house or a barn? It's, it's a barn, and that's a non-resident okay. landowner on the off the property on the western side, um, and it's kind of an overgrown pasture, so deer. They utilize it and walk through it, but really, you can see just off the property there's there's a larger wood block um, that deer are definitely staying in. But how do we get them to the bigger resources on the property? We don't want them going across the neighbors or at least on the property line on the edge on the western side along that fence row. We want them to come into the middle of the property, use that drainage that's above the pond to the to the northwest, and come all the way down through the center of the property cross the dam, another great pinch point to bottleneck deer and go ahead and enter into kind of the the heart of the property. So again, this that little portion in the past had been used for a destination food plot. Um, and that, that use currently, that put deer way out in the middle, didn't really connect the farm. And so we, we made a quick transition mindset wise and said it's it's better to uh join join north and south use this as a transition and place food elsewhere across the farm so, so we're talking grasses and shrubs mm-hmm. um 
and it's not it doesn't look uh, appear to be a very wide strip of grasses and shrubs or um it's not hugely wide or anything it's going to be 20 yards if you will um but it's wide enough it's yeah. wide enough it's got the edge um factor to it and so recommended probably the uh pure air natives um screen blend i would i would assume yep. just so we get taller growth a little bit more switchgrass um, some other species that are taller, I think Maximilian's, Maximilian sunflower, a couple others in that mix, but then the shrubs, probably American plum. That would uh, be a great candidate, gray dogwood, um, combination of those yeah. for sure. Cause we want, we, that woody structure in there is, is going to help, um, provide again, more structure, more permanentness to that screen, um, and they're going to rub on it. They're going to feed off of it. Uh, we can always use that extra uh, forage across the property. So that's number five. Oh, I guess before we move into that, there's another pollinator blend you'll see right up there by the houses. Yeah. Um, that's kind of for the for the wife for uh, more appeal to the property, um, aesthetics around the home, around the lake. Um, you know, it's it's a great it's a great visual. Um, and, and we can take out some of the fescue around the, around the house, make it a little more, um, native. So everyone, what he's got, he's got crop fields. So the more pollinator showy stuff we can get in there, the more pollinators will be active on the farm. Um, and again, he's, he's a resident, so he needs, he needs to have all of this stuff working outside, whatever, and, and still kind of please the wife at home. So that was a, a, a good addition to the property surrounding. Plus surrounding it does home. the same effect, probably more for nighttime activity, but same effect as the grass and shrubs, Correct. but on the northeast side of that pond. Yep, so. it, that certainly will will help that movement. Um, the next point, number six, is actually this stand. If you go to the pond on the southern side of the farm and you go kind of the southwest corner, a couple key important things about that stance site is the fact that one, it's in a absolute transition zone and you're, you're hunting that food plot that's on the Southern border, Southwest corner, if you will, you're hunting that food plot every single, like every time you're in that stand, you're hunting that food plot. But it gives you multiple multiple wins to go hunt the same food plot. Um, you're just off of it and not putting pressure on that food plot. So as you can imagine, there is a drainage to the north of that stand site um, that kind of feeds that pond. And the way that the deer are entering that field is right out of the very corner of the property. So you'll see some open and closed edge feathering to really bottleneck them down to utilize that little strip um, and that's a terraced strip in the field to utilize that um, even more as they're entering and exiting that field. There's a lot of deer sign, a lot of heavy trails, scrapes, rubs right there. So the key thing, though, about this one is the access that, that someone can use um, going across the dam of the pond. Hunting deer that might be in the food plot, you can hug the edge of the pond and get up to the stand site without being detected at all from deer in the food plot. So as they're going back 
in a morning situation or coming to the food plot, you're never putting pressure on the food plot, but essentially hunting the food plot itself, um, and that's a huge benefit, taking less pressure off those areas and hunting deer in transition and bottlenecking them down even more so than they already are utilizing the open and closed edge feathering. Adam, what do you think on that stat? I like it. I'm just curious... um on the map, I, I'm looking, what is the timber look like just west of that pond? Just west of the pond? Yeah. That's a, that's going to, and we talked about it in, in the, uh, in the tour, not anything that needs to be cut in there at this time, but a lot of TSI. Gotcha. We need to get so a it will be a bedding thick. area. It'll be thicker. It, it's not a go in and cut and create a bedding area. Um, but it will be thicker, and and as you open up canopy in any drainage, you're gonna have the green briar, the blackberry, that stuff come back in. So I would anticipate some deer bedding in there. Um, but one of the resources that we saw on the neighbors' side um, is that overgrown pasture. There was a lot of deer that were utilizing that and coming off the property at in that direct, in that in that portion of the farm, excuse me, that southwest portion of the farm transitioning in and out right through there. So it's definitely a uh, transition zone, but through the TSI, the hack and squirt, um, that's going to be a big uh, advantage to that little woodlot you're seeing west of that pond. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I think it looks good. The edge feathering will certainly help. Edge feathering is one of those things where so many times you see, well, they kind of move through this whole valley of this whole drainage, but I can't, one day it's going to be this side, one day it's going to be that side. Edge feathering is just a great thing to really serve as a natural gate to say, no, now you have this little strip here, plus you're improving the habitat by opening it up, um, the canopy and allowing more sunlight to increase the amount of diversity along the edge as well. So, yeah, and one of the other goals for, for the property owners, um, they're they want to see quail and they want to see more rabbits. They, they love that type of small game hunting. So a lot of these um, places of edge feathering, uh, they're a little bit more elongated than, than what we may do in some areas or, or other properties, but that's just to create um, more additional habitat along the edge. Um, and, and again, it goes back to understanding goals of a property and, and manipulating the habitat in a way, changing techniques, altering for what you may typically do to benefit those species. Um, so like we said, in, in that portion, that tree stand area, all on that field were, were trails. There was a lot of sign, but we don't want deer coming out above you on the, on the kind of the terrace field up to, I mean, excuse me, on the, on the Southwest side of that tree stand, you want them all coming out, dumping right there in front of you. So, um, edge feathering was, was super important in this area. This is the next spot. Oh, your favy number seven is the cedars yeah my my favorite definitely what everybody thinks is my favorite after listening to this podcast um this was a monster area was this an old field i'm assuming too at one point most likely um but when we're talking cedars we're talking log cedars i mean monsters tall straight and what's funny is you as you never know the connections that other people have. But when you start start talking about, okay, guys, here's what we have. Obviously, 
Cedars got to go. We're, we're not getting sunlight down here. There, there's very little benefit to having the cedars on the property. Turns out that they know actually a cedar logger. Oh, um, perfect. And so that's that's the benefit, one, of having connections. But two, and we, we've discussed this, Adam, with, with a lot of other clients on properties is what's the goal here? The goal is not to necessarily make money um, from, from the cedars. They just need to be gone. But if you can make money, absolutely. You're not gonna you're not gonna, you know, make thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars off of them. Yeah, but it may buy food plot seed for it, that year. Exactly. It may cover the cost of this or cover the cost of that. Or it may be a trade where someone says, Okay, I'm not gonna come I can't there's not enough there for me to come and pay you um for the cedar that's standing. However, I'll come cut it and you don't have to worry with it. I'll just haul it off and go. That saves him tons of time where he doesn't have to be spent cutting all those cedars down, hauling them out, um, cutting the limbing them up or anything like that. There's someone who's going to do that, and he can put his resources and time and energy um, into doing some of this edge feathering. You know, they can – you know, he, he likes to run chainsaw. So there's tons of edge feathering that needs to get done instead of him cutting the cedars. So, you know, it either can save you time and or money. Um, but what, what that bedding area does in that location, more importantly, habitat wise, is it puts a huge area. That's, that's several acres, two and a half, three acres, if not more, um, in an ideal bedding condition. Um, habitat wise, there'll be tons of cedar skeletons. Um, it's a little bit of a North slope, but he's going to have, he loves fire. Um, so is going to be utilizing prescribed fire through that area, um, to increase the amount of forage and diversity. Um, and then it's a huge focal point for the property because really everything will stem off of that bedding area. It's, it's centralized. But then all the funnels in and around the property, it's kind of like a spoke, on, I mean, uh, excuse me, the hub on a wheel. And all these funnels are the spokes going out into the property. So we took, again, three, four acres in the center of a property that weren't doing anything. And now we've transitioned it and improved the habitat to serve a better, a bigger, better purpose that the property did not have in, in the past. So... That's a huge, huge portion um, and advantage to the property. And Adam, you t- you asked me about it uh, yep. before we even started recording. So, hey, there's a, there's a road that goes really pretty close to that property. And it's um, not just a road. It's like one of the main roads right, right. to get to that southeast portion of the property. Yep. And you're like, wow, I don't want to be driving that close to bedding. Definitely a, a um, I won't say a, cons- a concern, but something to note. Um, based on the terrain of that field and then the cedars, you're dropping down in elevation quite a bit there. You can't really see it indicated on the map that well, but it does drop down. And so you're well above those deer on that um, road, and and there will be adequate cover to hide and get those deer out of view. Uh, So even though you might be traveling it often, the deer are going to be certainly well protected and hidden. And I think we'll – it's not going to hinder them – utilizing that area as a secure prime bedding location. Numero eight. eight. Looks like you've got several areas highlighted to 
um, basically a, a selective cut. And I hear a baby yeah. screaming I in the back. I hear a baby crying in the background. I was trying to figure out what that was. <laughs> you know, one thing, not to get off subject, but it's, people always told me a screaming baby sounds a lot like a predator call. I can totally hear it yeah. after listening to that baby scream several times. What since we ought to do is get her it. screaming. Yeah, we'll record it on the podcast, turn it into an audio file, and then go crank her up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is it is very, very close to a predator call. But um, selective cut hickories. Which is like, wait, what? A lot of times in our air, we don't have those people um, or, or we don't find those stands of timber that it's a select cut on just hickories. But in this area, um, indicated there on the map, there are huge, huge shagbark hickories, um, certainly log-sized, certainly great condition, very straight, um, no lower limbs, um, high density of them that someone's going to want that and come in there and cut those and get them out. But that is a twofold deal um, for the landowner itself. Of course, he needs TSI in the timber. It's very wide open. Um, There's not that much. Basically, the only thing growing in there was either hickory, hackberry, scattered white oak, post oak, black oak, gooseberry, and buckbrush. That's pretty much it. Mm-mm. What's a deer going to eat on? Very little in that. There's, there's That area is lacking diversity, of course. So with being closed canopy, seeing a resource that is um, that needs to be managed, the hickories are going to be gone. That, of course, will open up the canopy and get more sunlight to the forest floor. That's a part of a burn unit. Of course, and he's going to be utilizing prescribed fire through there. So, again, more sunlight, more bedding, more forage. There comes that additional um, winter forage in the form of browse that the property was lacking as well. We've got areas where um, now it's going to offer that because of the in, the in, kind of the intensity of, or the number of hickory logs that are going to come out of there. We're talking they're occupying, I would say, 50 to 60% of the canopy. So just by removing those those larger logs, uh, larger trees, he's going to have a lot of sunlight hitting the forest floor. Um, a deer will certainly bed around there, um, and that's okay because it's in close proximity to the resources. It's more in the center of the farm, and the other resources um, from that point, if they do tend to bed there, they're going to work themselves into the center of the farm. So again, it's not a designated, Hey, I want all the deer to be in here by default because of the vegetation that's going to return. There can be some, but prime time bedding resources are going to be elsewhere as you see indicated on the red. Yeah. But it's a, it's a big ridge that kind of runs through there right where that road is. Um, either side of that road is going to have staggered, um, select cut hickories and then they're actually in two different burn units as well that road splits burn units so he's gonna have different um regeneration sources over time because of the the prescribed fire setting back that vegetation keeping that that canopy open and maintaining the vegetation that we want in the timber throughout the property gotta have it and he's got a resource that needs to be managed in the right way. And a lot of people may be wondering, what in the heck they're going to do with hickories? 
There's a lot of people Tons. using hickories for cabinets now. Oh, my gosh. And, and that's another thing is there is an Amish community around this area. Um, and mentioned that. He goes, oh, yeah, they make they make hickory cabinets all the time. So yeah. you never know. Every every area, every region has different resources or people who utilize the land differently. And the Amish have gone into other properties we've been on and cut specifically hickory out and made, I'm sure, probably fantastic cabinets out of them. I'm you never sure. Know. Yeah, never know. Uh, number nine, going back to those alfalfa fields, mm. summer forage. Of course, you said they planted them this fall. So was it just alfalfa or did they mix it with? They mixed it and we actually made a social media post kind of oh, encouraging okay. That's people. where that was from. Yeah, encouraging people to kind of decipher what was happening with this forage. Um, that that came from, from this property. So, right, they, they planted a Roundup Ready version of alfalfa into these fields this fall, but then put in a nurse crop of winter wheat along with the alfalfa. Gotcha. So long-term goal, this is going to be uh, available for income on the property. He's doing kind of a, a profit share with a uh, with the farmer. And so um, he's going to be able to manage that field, but the, the crop itself is alfalfa, and, and the nurse crop uh, of wheat is adding to the establishment, the value of establishment of, of that alfalfa field and forage right now too, as it's getting its feet planted, its root system, the structure set, that wheat's a great ability, a great forage to offset pressure on the alfalfa as it gets established. One as thing you can imagine. with the crops as well, and then you add in the timber harvest from a standpoint of recreational farm to a, like a business, he's got this farm set up to where it's not a endless money pit, no, um, no, and no. it's not yeah. going to be taxed as a recreational farm. It's ta- it, it's a business here, so um, it's, it's awesome that he has the crops, but he's in, included the um, alfalfa, which I mean, we hunted farms that have alfalfa fields on them, and it's even turkey season wonderful, deer season wonderful, um, almost year round. There's a few times where it's not great. But at least it's We're not, not a barren field, yep. Yep. Um, and it's do- going somewhat dormant. But it's still, if they have to, there's some food there. So yes. I love seeing the alfalfa mixed in on this property. And, and it's funny, as before we really hit the property, it's like you know, what about turkey hunting? You know, is that is that something that you guys uh, love love to do and want to have more of? Absolutely. We had turkeys on the south end, but they never really this past spring, right, right when they bought the property, closed on it. But they never really hunted. I mean, they never really got to the center of the portion of the property. So they're a little disappointed. But then he goes and plants alfalfa, alfalfa. in the fall time. I said, yes, of course, the habitat work that we're going to do is going to help improve that. Yeah. However, your alfalfa field is going to be an absolute destination um, place. It's huge strut zones for turkeys. You're going to have long beards this spring. Don't don't you worry about that. Yeah. So they're going to look forward to, uh, I'm sure, killing some, killing some turkeys in that field. But alfalfa incredible summertime forage I, I believe it's six thousand pounds of of forage each acre that's oh planted yep. there yep. i mean huge huge summer forage resource but then again like we see deer we hunt them um on a different property they're hitting alfalfa october um and november still so huge resource absolutely great great addition to the property and again it's providing him income um as a as a resource and then forage opportunities for deer and attractiveness so i got there and i was like so what have you done since and he goes 
well, this year I planted uh, alfalfa. I said, bingo, there you go. Like you're, I, I love, I love that as a resource. And then because of that resource that's there, the alfalfa, we didn't have to implement that many clover food plots. No, it, it would be a waste to. of time too. Basically, the the peak attractiveness and palatability of of clover and alfalfa they pretty much overlap. So yes, there there's one small little kill plot of, of clover you'll see in another right of way. Um, that's there because it's a high deer traffic area. And it's shade tolerant, so it's going to be planted just as an attractive to, to bottleneck deer down a little bit. But we didn't designate any of these other areas in a clover food plot because you have an alfalfa stand and, and uh, 15 acres of alfalfa on the property. There's no need. Um, you're just kind of duplicating resources there on the property. So great addition to to the farm itself. Number 10, and this is one bedding area really in particular that truthfully completes the the circle or utilizes the transition zones that we talked about the bottlenecks that that you would expect deer to be in it really ties and pulls all of this together when when this bedding area is uh, added to the property so it's basically on the northeast side of the farm or north of the alfalfa field, the large portion of the alfalfa field. That's the bedding area we're talking about. It's just hardwoods, upland hardwoods, um, needs to be cut in, 70, 80% light cut in, um, and you'll have a great bedding area. But what it does is just off the property to the north of that, there is a a pasture field that kind of cuts into that wood block. So there, after placing a a bedding area, you've got a a natural pinch point between that edge of that field and then the bedding area, perfect place for um, deer that are scent checking, looking for does on a south wind or a southwest wind to to go on the north side of the bedding area. And then you're coming in, utilizing the pinch from the the pat the uh, the neighbor who he has an existing relationship with, knows he can access through there. Um, you're creating an absolute pinch point between the edge of that field and then the bedding area as well. Um, but what that bedding area does in addition to that, it certainly feeds that alfalfa field. Um, a lot of deer that, that are going to utilize that alfalfa field are going to be bedded up there and working back south. But now that you've got a large bedding resource across the alfalfa field on the south of it as well, the bottleneck that connects the two that runs north and south, really, it, it kind of shocked me, honestly. But the landowner didn't really experience any deer ut- utilizing that transition zone, this big funnel. Yeah. They they weren't using it. Like, I was like, I, I got to go kind of, not that I didn't believe him, but I was like, I, I want to go kind of read the sign in there, see how many trails are in there, buck rubs, this and that. There really was not that many. Like, it, it was shocking and disappointing that deer weren't utilizing that. But now as, as a visual and understanding, they're certainly going to use that funnel and that pinch point much more because we've got an attractive food resource right there in the center. In addition to that, we've got a bedding area on both sides of it. Yep. So now it's a bridge. It, it, that's exactly what it is. We're, we're connecting the dots on the property. Um, so that, that placement of that bedding area is for a bunch of different purposes, um, but it connects the south portion of the farm 
utilizes a funnel and then connects connects it to kind of the, the northeast side. But then another large funnel and that a lot of deer do is utilized go go north of his house and then back up to that that front um, ag field. So he's always seen them there during dark. The placement of that bedding area we just talked about, number 10, is also going to help feed that area, which he can hunt in that power line right away where the clover is. But then it helps to bridge the gap between the very first point number one and point number 10 are then closely related as well. So it really, it was, was as, that's the last place we went to on the farm was that last puzzle piece that we needed to pull all this stuff together on the property. So the property beforehand was lacking cover, was lacking winter browse, was lacking winter forage. Lots of, of ag- ag lots fields. of food even during the fall too. Yes, yes. Um, so we've basically addressed all those issues with this plan. We've added bedding areas. We've added winter browse. We've added fall food plots just by utilizing the open ground. We've completed and added transitions and enhanced natural transitions funnels across the property with the food resources, with native vegetation, with bedding areas. So truthfully, this farm now, as its plan is implemented, is going to come together as a fully functioning property. 105 acres is going to be utilized hunted all of it you'll see stand sites all across this property and so it's super important to i think as as a landowner now as you as you kind of saw this property develop think about the areas of your farm that you don't hunt or you don't go into how can they be better utilized how can you change the habitat to make the property function more fully and if you paid for 105 acres, that government, I want to hunt 105 acres. And I want deer to utilize and turkeys to utilize, quail, rabbit to utilize that's all 105 of, acres. That's one of my biggest probably disappointments when we when we consult and we're on people's properties is seeing a, a chunk of ground that's unutilized. That's mm-hmm. just like lost hope. Right. I would rather... I would rather stick a gnarly bedding area there and just say, well, it's it's now serving as winter food and great bedding, but and you'll figure out a way to hunt it rather than just let things be, be. and just yep. continue yep. in a, in a downward spiral. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, always something you can do. Certainly, certainly. Um so I, I think that this this property hopefully you guys will be able to agree looked great from the start. Was, was definitely attractive to the eye in a way of, man, that, that property should hunt good. But then you got to kind of learn the resources that were on the property, um, know the vegetation, kind of just through this podcast and listening to what was there currently. Uh, but then you see how manipulating the habitat has totally changed this and enhanced the natural funnels and the property and the flow and the way deer, turkey, game is going to utilize it. So hope that was helpful that's what we do on a on a pretty much daily basis is go to properties address what's currently there and make the recommendations to make it a fully functioning farm reach the goals of landowners so um there's a there's a prime example 10 points we could have done 20 on it but um that was certainly 
a fun little property shakedown. Adam, you want to do some? We got a few minutes left, and so we have our our animal plant profiles. Um, this week, I have the animal, and I chose a pollinator um, that's a bird. Now, what bird is it? The ruby-throated hummingbird. Um, I have kind of a close connection with this bird because of um, my entire life going to my grandparents, and they always mm-hmm. had hummingbird feeders, and we would sit with the kitchen table right next to a big old glass uh, window, and we would just sit there and eat Sunday lunch while staring at the hummingbirds coming Watch in to them. eat. Yep. Um, and so Ruby Throat is, has a special place in my heart. Of course, they have a huge range from southern to even mid-Canada, like mid-Saskatchewan, Alberta, all the way down to their um, migration route into southern Mexico and on down into, like, way down there, Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah, Yucatan and... and- and so uh, Central America. basically they have their breeding grounds in the U.S. and then they migrate south for the winter. Um, but they're a huge, huge um, pollinator. Um, of course, they consider them an open woodland species and their food source is nectar, obviously being a pollinator. Um, they nest in trees, uh, but they're not really a species of low concern. That's one mm-hmm. great thing. They, they have a good... Um, a good population, but um, some kind of cool facts about the um, ruby-throated hummingbird is they, during a second, they flap their wings 53 times. I don't even understand that. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. That's absolutely um, crazy. They basically, um, scientists place hummingbirds and Swiss in the same um, order, and that was Basically means they have without feet. Um, so that's how they look most of the time, obviously. You see a hummingbird yeah. f- hovering way more than you see them sitting on a limb perched up like a like a hawk. Um, they prefer to feed on red and orange flowers. Um, of course, they have good vision. One thing that they can see the ultraviolet spectrum that humans can't see. Oh, that's so that cool. helps them. I didn't um, know that. Yeah. Is that for identifying pollinators? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the coloration flowers? The coloration, yep. Cool. Um, they normally roost, um, place their their nest, um, deciduous or coniferous trees, but um, they've been known to roost now and build nests in chains, wires, and extension cords. Um <laughs> They're kind of the eastern North America. I'm not sure I mentioned that. Um, Does it say how big the young are when they hatch? Because like um, the, uh, ruby-throated hummingbirds are tiny, like, tiny, tiny, tiny. We're tiny, talking tiny. like an ounce or two. Yeah. Um, by the way, oh, the so oldest they, one recorded in history was nine years and one month, I believe. Really? Yeah, nine years old. Um, it, it's it's it blows my mind though that an animal so small, I and mean, we're talking a couple ounces, you know, migrates so far. Yeah, I, I I couldn't make that journey walking. Are you kidding me? And they're flying. These little boogers are flying, which takes me back to ornithology. I just thought of it. I want to say that there's a big migration kind of route between, like, along the eastern shore, like down through like kind of Delaware, <laughs> Maryland, eastern shore, and then there's a large gap um, between that crosses the Chesapeake Bay. Basically, from for you to get to uh, from Accomack County to Norfolk area, 
And I want to, I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, so don't quote me on it. But I want to say that a lot of times you see hummingbirds, like as you're driving across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, kind of like, that's like their only window. Because it's a long stretch that, it's like 26 miles, I think. Yeah. That it's just a land bridge. And that's all that they got. So if they if they go that peninsula down Maryland and Virginia, the eastern shore, they bottleneck down right to there and like, oh, go, 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 go. Because a, they lot, they see a lot of hummingbirds through there. A lot huh. of other birds. Because it's like, that's all, that's the only refuge that they got going across that that bay um the so size they weigh one to two ounces that's nuts <laughs> yeah wingspan of uh three and a little over three inches to a little over four inches is the average wingspan so crazy crazy little bird um super cool um just a, a, a an awesome little thing that we should be concerned about uh, just because it is a pollinator. Now, it's I think so many people think of pollinators, they think of monarch butterfly because of its um, population plummeting. But there are so many other types of bats are a big pollinator. Um, but uh, the the old ruby-throated hummingbird is another one. So That's pretty cool. Anyway. Well, for the, uh, the plant this week is the American hazelnut. Um, Last it wasn't last week. It was a couple of weeks ago, really. Now that we talked about plums, the American plum, and, mm-hmm. and that really kind of um, got people's attention. We had a lot of comments in there. You know, I think we we termed it as kind of the utility player when it comes to shrubs. And it's funny uh, we want to keep bringing up shrubs for the fact that they're really forgotten across the landscape. Shrubs played in a hugely important uh, role way back when. But now all we have is, is pretty much truthfully ag fields, pasture fields, and woodlots. There, there's very little in between in these transition plants, um, you know, in, in, in plant heights that are three to eight, ten foot tall. We don't have those across the landscape very much anymore. So here's another one. The American hazelnut is a shrub, very small tree, three to eight feet, foot tall. It is native to Missouri, um, but can be found in ranges from Maine to Saskatchewan south to Georgia, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Um, they're part of the alder family, and they produce a, of course, as you guys know, a, a hard mass nut. Um but what is what is neat about them, uh, on the same tree, they have both male and female um, parts. So it's got the cat skin, cat kins, excuse me. They droop. You'll see it's part of the alder family. Uh, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I know what those are. So look look them up. And then the female flowers are enclosed in a scaly bud, uh, which is where that fruit there is. So um, they will flower from March to May, and then the fruit ripens in July to September. Um, so you're like, what? why in the world would I care about a, a fruit, or why would I want to plant something that ripens in July and September? Um, number one, a lot of seasons open up July, I mean, se- September time frame. So this is a great resource. Deer will absolutely bend on properties that, that um, people have planted these uh, in, in specific areas as a shrub line. Uh, and deer will hammer them, <laughs> especially when that fruit ripens or, and the hard mass is available. That scaly kind of um, area around the the hazelnut itself will kind of open up and become that that hard mass is available for for wildlife. Um, they're extremely browsed on as well. Um, this landowner I was on in Delaware had cages around them, and any any 
kind of what we talked about last week with the witch hazel. Yeah. That's kind of what, what jogged my memory about them. Um, Anything within reach. It was funny because this, and this landowner has got like 250 acres of early successional habitat. Like that's pretty much all the property is. However, this browse that the American hazelnut in the shrub form was, was offering was still extremely attractive because outside of the cage, it was just trimmed like like you would have like a hedge trimmer. Yeah. It was just shaved. So every American hazelnut that was growing was the exact shape of a utilization cage. Like it wasn't natural, but that's just how selective um, and attractive and palatable that these this browse was and the fruit was to to uh, to deer. So again, kind of like kind of a utility player. It can be a great shrub line transition line, um, and then great forage as well so um they're pretty uh, one thing going back to what the landowner in delaware said i always think of that he had the hazelnuts and then he was mixing it with like fruit trees or something yep. and he said that he liked his what did he say he liked his deer to have access he liked uh it was trail mix basically. he liked trail mix so he figured his deer, deer needed yeah, it too exactly so he <laughs> so in the transition uh areas or around food plots right he had he'd plant uh fruit and nut bearing trees yep first year because he liked trail mix so he figured yeah. they would do <laughs> i said you need to get a chocolate fountain set up out here yeah um but what's what's pretty cool a full-grown mature hazelnut tree again that kind of three eight foot tall um tree can produce 10 to 15 pounds of hazelnuts a year wow that's pretty good for that short tree imagine if you if you scale that out across the property and start to connect areas like we did on this week's podcast you know that transition line with shrubs we're going to incorporate that imagine if you got 20 trees out there now you've got a lot of forage out there too in the form of hard mast and in the form of browse so don't count out shrubs especially a hazelnut american hazelnut and or things like a plum so check them out american hazelnut there's your plant for the week any awesome. last announcements? No, I don't think so. I think I think we wrapped that that up pretty good. So hopefully you guys enjoyed the property breakdown of a Midwestern farm um, and enjoyed these plant and animal pro- profiles. Yeah, hopefully uh, you guys will see us back next week. We should have a guest on coming up that you're not going to want to miss. So be sure to be checking in and uh, checking out our other podcast for Love of the Land. Yep. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. See ya.